Hey, friends, let's get to it. Happy Friday. Welcome aboard. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. My name is Rob Breckenridge. Thank you for joining us here today. You can reach us, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. A lot of ground to cover on the program today. In just a second, we'll dive into the Alberta election campaign as we wrap up the first week on the campaign trail. Coming up later on today, we'll hear what the Prime Minister had to say today as he attempts to reconcile uh, conflicting versions of events here around this CSIS assessment and this whole situation with threats from China targeting MP Michael Chong and his family. We'll hear what the Prime Minister had to say today. The World Health Organization declaring that COVID-19 is no longer a global health emergency. COVID hasn't gone away, but we're definitely in a, a different phase here. The official global pandemic phase is now officially over. We'll talk about that. Coming up later on today, we'll talk about music, plagiarism, copyright law. Interesting case this week is Ed Sheeran was found not guilty, not liable, of plagiarizing, ripping off a Marvin Gaye classic in one of his own hit songs. We've had a few cases go through the courts recently where songs certainly have similarities but is it plagiarism? Where's that line? We're going to hear from uh, Kurt Dahl coming up later on today. He's a lawyer and a musician, so has some unique perspective uh, on all of this. We'll get to that coming up uh, later on today. As mentioned, your calls, your text here, 403-974-TALK. As mentioned, uh, wrapping up week one of the uh, Alberta election campaign, not yet a full seven days since the uh, writ was proverbially dropped, but uh, May 1st is when the campaign officially began. We're getting a sense already of how this campaign is going to unfold, the issues the parties want to focus on, the issues Albertans have identified as important issues, and also some of the key battlegrounds. But joining us to, to break down the first few days of this campaign a little bit further, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Melissa Cowett, public policy specialist, political strategist, principal at MC Consulting and founder of Pocket Lobbyist. Melissa, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it feels like we've kind of been in campaign mode for several weeks, not just one. Did we notice any big changes going into this week than what we've been seeing from the two main parties leading up to May 1st? We really didn't. We see the UCP continue to focus on affordability, inflation, cost of living, and we see the NDP con continuing to focus on those things, but sort of putting a little bit more um, direct focus on health care and social services, uh, because those are the issues. Um, that Albertans care about. And so you saw that reflected, you see that reflected in the tone of the leaders and what they're talking about. You had um, Danielle Smith making um, some tax cuts announcements on day one of the campaign, announcing um, some strategies to attract needed workers. And you see Notley continue um, to really, really talk about continued access to public health care. And um, they also released, um, or re-released, I should say, their competitiveness, jobs, and investment strategy. So those are the main themes of the campaign that, that we yeah, we saw one poll this week from Ipsos suggesting that affordability and health care are the two big issues really almost eclipsing all others in this campaign. So, again, not a surprise that they're focusing on those issues and they both kind of speak to to the strengths of, of the, the two parties, don't they? Absolutely. And it's really interesting because um, the um, affordability and health care issues are the top issues, but their top issues are different depending on who you support. So if you're a UCP supporter, you're more likely, according to that poll, to be supporting those affordability measures where people who are more likely to um, vote for the NDP are, are more um, finding healthcare to be a bit more important. So for those campaigns, strategically, it's really about finding what the middle is most focused on. And I, I think that many Albertans are, are probably um, unsure of which way they'll go um, on election day because both of those issues are really important and I think that, um, that that's why this campaign will probably matter a lot in the lead up to election day. Yeah, and it's interesting because it feels like uh, on paper, I mean, the UCP and the NDP are, are kind of far apart on the political spectrum and not necessarily competing for the same voters. But feels like in this campaign, they kind of are. You saw Rachel Notley this week and her message to conservatives who have maybe never voted NDP before. You know, Daniel Smith making a pitch to blue collar workers, maybe those who have typically voted NDP in the past. So it does feel like they are competing for uh, the, the same pool of voters here. It's really fascinating. You know, I've never... Um, in the last several election cycles, I've never seen an election cycle where the perception of the parties is so different. So I think people think 
Notley is very far left and right. Smith is very far right. But on paper, as you say, so many of their policies are really, really similar. Like even their job creation policies are very similar. You have obviously some um, slight differences when it comes to the UCP wanting to continue to protect Alberta's tax advantage and even cutting taxes. And um, there's there's many who believe that the NDP would bring corporate taxes back up to 10%. But I mean, that's one of the main nuances. And then we also saw this week, um, there are some nuances on path to net zero, et cetera. But other than that, there's there's a lot of similar themes being discussed. So it's really, I think, people's perceptions of both of those parties that are, are further apart than their actual policies are. What did you make of that whole controversy around the, you know, the net zero issue? Because, you know, I think for the NDP, there's a need to explain how we're going to get to net zero on the electricity grid by 2035, what that entails, what that costs. Uh, the UCP really trying to hit hard on that issue. But, you know, the, the concern that maybe they were misrepresenting the numbers, that they'd commissioned a report, and then the organization that did that report came out and said, well, hang on a second here. That's not exactly what we found. So who, who came out of that looking better or worse, do you think? Yeah, so the, the net zero topic is a really interesting one because it's a complicated one. And in campaigns, if you're explaining, it's not the best place to be in because voters are typically looking at really short sound bites. So I think that the NDP has um, definitely gotten some juice out of the way that the UCP decided to portray those numbers. But the, the UCP issued clarification um, on how they got to those numbers um, and, and cleared that up. I think what we can gather from from both of, from both of these parties is that both are committed to net zero. The government released a report, an emissions reduction report, committing to net zero emissions by 2050. This topic of net zero electricity grid is where the UCP and the NDP differ. So both are committed to net zero by 2050. The NDP, which is aligned with the federal liberal position, is of the opinion that we should get to net zero electricity grid by 2035 and the UCP is in their announcement and, and whether that communications could have been better or not um, aside in their announcement what they were trying to, to explain is that it is going to cost a lot of money to meet that goal and so perhaps meeting that goal is important but the timing of meeting that goal needs to be pragmatic and so that's really the nuance in terms of where they differ on that policy. Yeah. It was interesting, too. I mean, you know, with everything going on in the campaign trail, we saw oil prices dip down under $70 a barrel this week, which could potentially put Alberta back into a deficit situation. Yet, you know, a lot of the promises, whether it's spending or, or tax cuts, you know, seem more uh, of, of a situation where we're in a surplus, which, you know, who knows how things are going to unfold the rest of the year. Uh, what do you think in terms of what the public wants to hear in terms of these kinds of promises, whether, you know, there's going to be a need for the parties to be a little more prudent how are they how do you balance that where there's an expectation that you know you make big sweeping promises in a campaign but also the need to recognize some of the the challenges with energy royalty revenues the dependence on that and maybe at some point you know getting off that roller coaster absolutely so i mean you're 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 talking around the idea of a sales tax and the idea of um diversifying revenue so so neither campaign is going to talk about that right. because that is just the new third rail of politics um in this province but it's interesting because i think albertans generally don't want to see the provincial government in debt and generally don't want um to see the government overspending but and there's a big but affordability is such a big concern yeah. and so i think that that actually probably is a higher concern for voters than um, than the provincial debt. It's still important, but I think when you, you have people who are wondering how they're going to pay their bills, groceries are expensive, um, interest rates um, and borrowing costs are, are, are rising, that is, I think, more important to Albertans than diversifying um, revenues. Um, it's still important, but I just think that both campaigns are rightly speaking to the most immediate um fear, I suppose, amongst yeah. the electorate, um, and that's politically sound to do so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Now, it's also been interesting to see the first week of the campaign, the, the geography of all of this. A lot of focus on Calgary, and that's not surprising. That's probably going to be a theme uh, as we move through this campaign. But, you know, the rest of the province needs to be looked after, too, and I know the parties are going to be strategic in where else they go and, and where else maybe some of the, the close ridings are. What have you seen so far? What, what are you expecting to see from the parties in terms of where they need to focus so i will i would assume that both parties will continue to double down on calgary um 
you know, the, the campaign period, and this might be a controversial sort of take, but the campaign period is not really um, a time that political parties seek to engage with every single um, riding across the province. That is the role of government, and that's certainly the role of political parties in sort of the four years between elections. So political parties strategically are going to focus on where they have the most opportunity and upside, and that is Calgary. So we'll continue to see that. I also wouldn't be surprised if you see the leaders spend some time in Lethbridge, um, you know, Lethbridge East, Lethbridge, Lethbridge West are competitive ridings, um, as well as, you know, Red Deer, Grand Prairie, um, perhaps Slave Lake a couple of times, which is going to be a competitive riding. So you, you will just see that the leaders spend time where the most votes are available for them. That's not to say that they can forget about the rest of the province, but just in a 28-day rip period, you are optimizing for how you can get the most bang out of your engagement um, with limited time uh, and only one leader that can only be in one place at one time. So I, I can I continue to 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 think that Calgary will be that focus for mm-hmm. both parties. And in terms of the theme, I mean, there's the, the message that the parties want to hammer home, the, the themes they want to hammer, but there's also, you know, hammering the opponent. We've seen already, you know, we're going to see the, you know, the negative ads attacking the other side. Um, how does it compare so far to, to previous elections? How, how negative do you think this is going to get? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, negative campaigning is used in campaigns because it works fundamentally. Um, you know, this is an emotional election for many voters. And so, Talking to voters with um, with these sort of fear-based tactics does work. It is interesting, though, because both parties, while using negative attack ads, are choosing to use them in a different way. So you see um, the UCP really just primarily focusing on the fear, like economic and affordability fear, around what NDP policies would do to the province, whereas you see the NDP perhaps a little bit more focused on, um, you know, trust, health care, um, accountability. And so you see the NDP attacking from perhaps a bit more more different perspectives, whereas the NDP seems to be really, really focused on um, on what Notley and the NDP would do to the economy. So it's just a different style that both both are um, both are using in, in their attack ads. Well, it is a motivating factor. I, I think, you know, among the NDP base, you know, there's a lot of concern about, you know, what Danielle Smith's true intentions are among the UCP base. And it was a factor in 2019 that, you know, we don't want the NDP back in charge. We don't want Rachel Notley back as premier. So that that really those those attitudes, those that that mood right now, I think it really lends itself to that kind of campaign. I think so. And again, we tie it back to that's because this election is being fought primarily on personality and trust. And that's, that's an emotional, that triggers emotional reactions from voters. It's, it's, we've discussed, you know, the policies are not all that different. Um, perhaps on the investment interaction side, the UCP is more palatable to voters, but when you are, when you are putting a value proposition to voters and it's, you know, trust, personality, those kinds of topics, the negative attack ads can work a bit more. In 2019, as much as it was about personality, every election is about that, it was way more about policy. Uh, And so I think this election is different in that way for attack ads. We'll leave it there for now. See how the rest of the campaign plays out. Melissa, appreciate the insight, and thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. All right, there you go. That's uh, Melissa Cowett, uh, public policy specialist, political strategist, principal at MC Consulting, founder of Pocket Lobbyist. So her thoughts on the first few days of the campaign were two dozen days away from Election Day. So not yet a full week on the campaign trail, but like we said at the outset, I mean, these two parties have been in campaign mode really for several weeks now. It's just we're in the official part of this campaign. Uh, further to that, that observation that, you know, both parties have tried to move uh, more to the center in this campaign. So speaking with Global News this morning, UCP leader Danielle Smith uh, saying that, you know, some of these issues like replacing the RCMP with a provincial police force or setting up an Alberta pr- uh, pension plan, issues that were central in her leadership race are not going to be central to the uh, UCP campaign. Uh, Smith saying that, you know, we don't want to focus on those issues because affordability and health care are just much bigger issues right now. We have said that we're going to do consultation on a number of these issues. Um, I think our sheriffs, for, for instance, are doing a great job. People are very excited about the role that the sheriffs are playing, and we're building that out. And the other, uh, the other ones, we will, we'll have to, we have, we're waiting a couple of reports. And I've said as soon as those reports are available, we'll make them public. 
So I think part of the, the calculation here is that those that supported the Sovereignty Act or support a provincial police force or provincial pension plan, that those are probably locked in UCP voters anyway. Now, maybe it, it does take, you know, certain factions of the base for granted, but I, I think that's the calculation. They need to maybe shelve some of those issues uh, to win over voters that are still on the fence. We spent the last eight years talking about two songs with dramatically different lyrics, melodies, and four chords, which are also different and used by songwriters every day all over the world. I'm just a guy with a guitar who loves writing music for people to enjoy. I am not and will never allow myself to be a piggy bank for anyone to shake. Frustrated but vindicated, British singer-songwriter Ed Sheeran, now 2-0 in cases where he's been accused of ripping off somebody else. This time that somebody else was the one and only Marvin Gaye, his classic Let's Get It On. According to Marvin Gaye's estate, Ed Sheeran's song Thinking Out Loud ripped off Let's Get It On. The jury found that uh, Ed Sheeran was not liable, did not commit plagiarism. That similarities is not the same. As mentioned, the second time Ed Sheeran has been sued, his song The Shape of You was accused of ripping off a song called OY by Sammy Switch. Well, again, similarities, but that's not necessarily plagiarism. So how have the courts handled these cases? Because a lot of these have gone both ways. Sometimes, you know, courts find that there was plagiarism. Other times it goes this way. And we've got laymen on these juries who maybe don't understand all the intricacies uh, of chord progression and music composition. Right. And perhaps some of this is ultimately subjective. What's, uh, you know, something that's inspired by something else or sounds similar to something else? And what crosses the line into plagiarism? Our next guest has some insights, some expertise, some interest uh, in, in this issue from both sides of it, both as a lawyer and as a musician. Kurt Dahl is a partner and entertainment lawyer with Cole Harbor Law and is drummer for the band One Bad Son. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. More, by the way, at LawyerDrummer.com. Kurt, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Before we get into, you know, the, the legalities of all of just just at, at, at the level as a creator, an artist, I mean, Ed Sheeran seemed really emotional about all of this. And I would imagine the notion that you're stealing, that what you're putting out as your work, your art, someone saying that you took that from someone else, like that, that's got to be deeply personal, I would think. You're so right. I think that, and he even said himself, if he loses this case, he's done with music, which is quite a ominous uh, thing to say. You know, for Sheeran, like, I think this is the third or fourth time that he's been accused of this, and at least the second court trial. And, you know, it really, like, he missed his grandmother's funeral, I think, to mm-hmm. be at this trial. You know, yeah, at some point it just gets... Um, it goes beyond annoying and goes into the sort of personal level. And it, quite frankly, it, it, it costs a lot of money and time. And I think that you're right. These are sort of, as a songwriter, these are his babies. And to be told that your babies aren't yours must be uh, interesting and stressful. Yeah, you mentioned Ed Sheeran has been accused of this before. It was the same verdict last time around. But we've seen it with the, you know, the estate of Marvin Gaye. Uh, you know, they went after Robin Thicke and were successful in, in a separate case. So uh, we, we've seen these issues before go different ways. So going into this case, were, were you expecting a, a certain outcome or is it just really that unpredictable? No, I think in this case, I mean, I, I thought that Ed Sheeran was innocent, uh, that there wasn't plagiarism. Uh, whereas with the Blurred Lines case, I thought that I, I sort of knew that or I, I anticipated that they were going to lose um, because with Blurred Lines, uh, you know, Robin Thicke and uh, his producer, this is right now, but um, they both admitted that they were trying to create a song that sounded exactly like, you know, the original Marvin Gaye song. So the first thing I say to artists, don't say you're trying to rip off a song and put it on YouTube, you know, um, 
So they, could, they said we were going for the vibe. We, we tried to copy the drum beat, copy the groove, use the same chord progression. So they sort of admitted to that, uh, and it was all over the Internet. Whereas with this case, I mean, what we're talking about, the two songs, Let's Get It On and Thinking Out Loud, you know, the chord progression is the same. It's, um, it's uh, C, F, G, essentially, with maybe an E minor thrown in there. Those are the building blocks of so many different pop songs. And you can't, as one artist, you can't sort of own uh, a chord progression, right? Mm-hmm. These these chord progressions are so ubiquitous. And Ed Sheeran did a great job. He went, he took the stand with a guitar and played, you know, a series of songs that all have the same chord progression. And, of course, the only difference is the way he sang it, right? Each song sounds different because of the vocals, but the underlying chords are the exact same. So... You know, I think that those are the building blocks of songs that you can't, one artist cannot, you know, sort of copyright a chord progression. Well, yeah, and that's the thing that came up in this case. You know, so lawyers for the the estate of Marvin Gaye uh, pointed to what they said was a smoking gun, right? So Ed Sheeran was uh, doing a concert, and he was kind of doing a, a live mashup of these different songs you alluded to and, and sang both of these songs. So to them, that was kind of proof that Ed Sheeran was admitting that they were the same song. That would be a weird thing to admit in front of, you know, 20,000 people. I think there was, as you say, a different point he was making there. Yeah, no, that was. I love that. That was Ed's comment. Like, yeah. I'd be pretty dumb if I, if I did that live and knew that I actually had ripped off the song to make my song. You know, the, the mashup, from his perspective, just shows how these songs can all mash together. And, again, it's sort of like these are the building blocks of, of songs. It, it's sort of like telling a painter you, know, you can't use red and blue in your painting because some other painter used red and blue. Whereas, of course, it's not what you it's not the colors, it's what you do with the colors that makes a painting. And it's similar with songs. I mean, you can't say this chord progression is mine no one can use it. And I think even at this trial, I believe Ed, you know, showed other songs that would work with the, both the Marvin Gaye song and his song. You know, and I, I think that if I was Ed Sheeran's lawyer, all I would do is go take the stand and play a, a series of songs with the same chord progression that came before Let's Get It On. Because mm-hmm. then you're showing that, well, if this is plagiarism with Sheeran, then, of course, Marvin Gaye was then plagiarizing all those songs that came before. <laughs> Yeah, and look, I I don't know to what extent Ed Sheeran might have been inspired by Marvin Gaye or that song. Like, you know, I mean, as you say, with the chord progression, you can note some some similarities there. And I I do think there's a lot of that in music, too, where, you know, artists come along and, you know, they kind of change the game. And a lot of artists who follow after them are really inspired by them. You think about the Beatles and the impact they had on on so many bands. I mean, Oasis, you know, openly admits we were very much inspired by the Beatles. But, I mean, Oasis didn't steal from the Beatles. No, it's such a fine line, and this, I'm fascinated by this. It's that line between inspiration and, and plagiarism, right? right. Um, and it, it, it is a fine line. I mean, with these cases, I, I think you're going to see more and more of these trials. I mean, they've been around forever, like going back to the 60s and 70s, you know. But I think now they're more, they get more press, and, of course, the social media, you know, I could share it more. But, you know, this sort of discussion is not new. But what I would say is happening is maybe – you know, maybe artists these days are, are and not, not in the Ed Sheeran case, but, you know, I think they're looking back to the, the sort of the masters from the 60s and 70s, you know, sort of the golden era of the recorded music industry. And they're, you know, they're drawing inspiration. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, there really is, there's only seven chords that you can draw right. from and you can, you can make little, play them differently, but at the end of the day, there's seven chords. So, and there's certain chord progressions that work, you know, and, you know, I think one of the most popular ones is C F G, and that's what these two songs are. Um, I know that you're a you're a big tragedy hit fan like myself. You know, and so here's a good example. Like, you know, Head by a Century. You know, obviously the, one of their biggest songs, one of the great Canadian songs of all time. You know, the chords themselves. You know, it's like D and, and C essentially. So if you p- just play a song with D and C chords, well, that's not going to be plagiarism of Head by a Century. But if you play it the way that they played it, you know, with the, that intro riff, um, I'm, I'm not going to sing it out loud because I'm a drummer. You don't want to hear that. <laughs> right. But um, but if you play like that and then you have a vocal that's similar to what Gord, 
Downey uh, saying, then all of a sudden it could be plagiarism. So that's the whole, that's the the sliding scale and the gray area in the bins. It's like can't, but you can't say any song with D and C guitar chords is ripping off a head by a century. It's sort of what you do with those chords. Yeah, and that's the thing. You think back, and you mentioned some of these cases that came up even as far back as the, the 70s. I remember there's a big one in the 80s with uh, Huey Lewis and the News and the, the theme from Ghostbusters. Right. So, yeah. right, and you think since then, how many, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of songs have been created just in that, you know, 30 or 40 years since then? Uh, how many songs exist right now, right? And it's impossible for artists to go and listen to every single song that's ever existed to make sure that what you're creating isn't too similar to something else that's been created. Because there are, uh, beyond just similarities, there are coincidences that can occur. Yeah, and, and my understanding, you know, I think the, that that doesn't really, like the coincidence defense doesn't really work as a defense. Um, you know, it, it, let's say you by accident rip off uh, Stairway to Heaven, which of course that was a big, yep. a big case as well. Um, and which Jimmy Page, I think they actually argued that it was it was accidental that they sort of stole this that intro guitar part. Um, you know, the fact that you didn't mean to do it or not, it doesn't actually work as a defense. Oh, interesting. Um, but if you say, and sort of, you see the argument back in the pre-internet days that there's no way you could have heard this song, therefore you couldn't have ripped it off. Um, that doesn't work anymore because, of course, the internet. So that, a song like, well, in this case, let's get it on. I mean, if Ed Sheeran would say, "I never heard that song before," of course that wouldn't work because no. the song is so <laughs> right. ubiquitous. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, these days, it really, you know, I, I think the question is. Uh, is plagiarism happening more and more because people are running out of ideas? I I don't think so, but I think that there is sort of, you know, again, there's the golden era of music in my mind anyways, and mm -hmm. that's sort of, you know, pre-internet. And maybe, I, maybe I'm dating myself now by saying that, but um, I think that a lot of new artists draw from the masters uh, from the, you know, from the 20th century. And, so I, I think, and people are more litigious too. I think that's also a factor. I think the, the gay estate is known for being quite litigious. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there's not more cases coming from them going forward. Yeah, and I mean, look, you know, on the one hand, they got a legacy to protect, right? And, you know, there, there's also a lot of money in, involved in that. So uh, th there were those factors there. But going forward, you know, these cases aren't going to stop coming forward. But do we at least have some better clarity? Is it clear where the bar is set that we can recognize that there are common chord progressions and that doesn't meet the standard and other cases where we've seen plagiarism found that do we have a clear idea of where that line is, what that standard is? You know, honestly, and this sounds like a typical lawyer uh, answer, but um, <laughs> it really is. It really depends. It's case by case. And what I found, like personally, with you know, clients have come to me and say, "Listen, this big song you know, rips off my song. Can you help?" What I found is, listen, you need to hire a musicologist. So there's actually people out there that their job is to be sort of scientists of music, which sounds like a pretty sweet job to me. But um, you know, you hire a musicologist. Both sides hire them. They're like again, sort of scientists that break apart the different parts of a song, and then you have to, and it's not cheap to do that, by the no. way, and then you you have to make that argument. You, you know, if, if you just send a letter to, well, I guess it's like Ed Sheeran in this example and say, you ripped off my song, his lawyers are going to say, well, go hire someone, go hire a musicologist, start a lawsuit against us, and be prepared to spend, you know, six, seven figures to try to get a resolution here. So it's, I think, to your question, there, there's no set rule, but you know, there is these experts out there, musicologists can sort of analyze the, the basics of a song and, and give you an opinion. But maybe they should be on the jury because, you know, musicologists, as you say, probably knows a bit more than you about this. You probably know a lot more than me about this. Yet when it comes to, to putting a jury together, I'm going to be the one on the jury, not you or, or the musicologist. Yeah, well, that's interesting. You're right. And that's the issue with jury uh, trials in general. But um, yeah, I guess maybe the the goal there and, and perhaps it's a good goal is I mean, I mean both sides present musicologist evidence and then it's sort of like the average person decides if they can tell the two songs apart you know really interesting well, as you say we've not seen the last of these cases but really appreciate all the insight much more at lawyerdrummer.com kurt Dahl, thanks again for the insight and uh, joining us here today my pleasure rob have a good weekend 
Are you too? There you go. That's Kirk Dahl. He's a lawyer and a drummer, entertainment lawyer and partner at Cole Harbor Law, drummer for the band One Bad Son. So some unique insight on some of these issues. But yeah, when these things go before juries, it's you and I that are being asked these things. Like, I don't think Ed Sheeran ripped off Marvin Gaye, but I'll admit that, you know, again, there's there's similarities there. Okay, but what do I know about chord progression? Well, the answer is nothing. I know nothing about it. Well, a quote here from UBC law professor Ben Perrin, who says, a capital punishment by another name has returned to Canada. Now, that, that's quite a statement. So what does that mean? We're talking about medical assistance in dying. Now, medical assistance in dying is a right that Canadians have. Right? The Supreme Court, of course, struck down the criminal prohibition on assisted suicide. And so we have a legal framework in place, although we're still trying to to adapt that and try to establish what those parameters are. But essentially, then, medical assistance in dying is is seen as health care. So inmates in prison do have access to health care. And so that would mean that that includes access to medical assistance in dying. But how exactly should that work in the context of a prison? And how often is this happening? Well, some new data has emerged that shows that Canada has performed nine medically assisted deaths among prisoners in the last seven years. And that's more than any other country, as far as we can tell from the available data. Uh, one of the reasons we know this is, is the work of our next guest, Dr. Jessica Shaw, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of Calgary, has been studying this issue and submitted the access to information request. A lot of concern here about, just if nothing else, the lack of transparency here. Uh, Professor Shaw joins us on the line here this afternoon. Uh, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first of all, uh, why did it take an access to information request uh, to, to get this information? That's a good question. Um, Made deaths are not reported on out of Correctional Services Canada the same way they are for the rest of the general population. Uh, And I have to say that the data that was released was quite redacted, so it's very protected when it's coming from our correctional institutions. So what questions then do we still have, given all of that? We have a lot. So over the past five years, I've I've done research with um, both the access to information requests, but also speaking with prisoners who are serving end of life, or who are serving life sentences rather, and talking to them about end of life care. So thinking about really the, the meaning and, and having those conversations, someone who's um, serving a life sentence and talking about how they're going to live and die. I also did interviews with each of the, the three physicians involved with the first um, three made deaths for prisoners in Canada. And I spent a great deal of time looking at the different policies and guidelines that um, that guide how MAID is implemented in Canadian prisons. So doing all of that, there are a couple uh, key pieces that stand out to me from from the research. And what are those? Well, um, first is, and and to start with policy and guidelines, which maybe isn't uh, the most interesting to everyone, but it's really important because they guide how care is offered. Global human rights norms suggest that um, we have this idea of the principle of equivalent care, and this is put forward by the United Nations and the World Health Organization, and that means that healthcare services that are available in the community should be available within correctional facilities, and that incarcerated people have the same rights to that healthcare as the general population. In theory, I think we, we agree to this. In practice, when it comes to MAID, There are a couple areas where uh, prisoners have to go through extra steps in order to access assisted dying that the rest of of Canada doesn't have to go to. And if, for example, um, one of their assessors finds them to be ineligible, a prisoner does not have the option to have uh, a second assessment. It's sort of the process stops right there. So those are are how our guidelines don't necessarily align with how MAID is implemented in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. From the interviews that I did with um, people who are serving life sentences and talking about end-of-life care, some of the pr- surprising statements to me were about um, this idea of being pressured to have made, which is, in my limited data, uh, and, and anecdotally non-existent in contrast 
prisoners were afraid of being prevented from accessing aid. There was a fear of, of if they were to raise the idea of assisted dying, they would be deemed suicidal and potentially put in solitary confinement, which is a highly undesirable place to be. Um, and then talking about made as an alternative to a life sentence. This is something that's not legal in Canada, but I think the fact that it's um, being raised by people who are serving time inside is something that we need to think about. So this is uh, folks who are saying, you know, I've, I've, I'm labeled as a dangerous offender. I have no prospect of relief. Um, one gentleman said to me, you know, why not just let me die? Uh, save the taxpayer dollars and let me go. Um, this should trouble us. And, and I think it, it calls forward as well, sort of the nature of, of crime and punishment in Canada as a whole. Right. So when we look at the, the um, instances of, of made that have been granted uh, or mm-hmm. the, the inmates who have received this, what do we know about their cases, if anything? Not a whole lot. And this is where the, the data are lacking or they're not being publicly uh, shared. So we know that um, up until March of this year, 27 requests have been made for made from prisoners and uh, nine were granted. Uh, of those, we know that eight of the nine happened outside of uh, prison facilities, so in community-based hospitals typically. Uh, one happened inside the prison healthcare system at the request of the patient, and that's about it. We don't know reasons for uh, what the requests were for the reasons, what the diagnoses were. Um, we don't know why people were denied made or what kind of follow-up was offered. That's not been publicly released or available. Mm-hmm. There was a report by APTN on some of this. They reported that the first three inmates to 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 be granted medical assistance in dying were all indigenous, and that in in all three instances the individuals remained shackled throughout the procedure. Yes, um, I think that I don't have access to that data that they were reporting on. Um, I know that. Some of the, the folks who I spoke with were Indigenous, and, and definitely we know that shackles have been involved in uh, several made deaths. Specifically, if you imagine someone who has to be transferred into the community, mm-hmm. um, ultimately it's the parole officer who decides that they can be moved into a community hospital, for example. And uh, one of the physicians who, who was involved with one of the made deaths described the presence of prison guards and police officers in shackles as very distressing to them as they were trying to move forward with uh, doing a final assessment for, for consent uh, and ultimately leading towards the person's death. That um, the fact that there were shackles and, and sort of guards around was, was quite distressing. Um, even saying, I remember the, the physician saying, uh, it's not as if this person was dying alone, it was worse. They were dying with their captors present. And that's really stayed with me. Yeah. Okay, so in terms of you know better shaping our approach here, and you alluded some of the the you know the concerns you have or the questions we still have. It, it seems like the place to start here is first and foremost with with transparency. Yes, definitely transparency. I think um, collecting and sharing data is important. It's critical for any public health service. Um, it's required for the rest of the the general population. We have, as of January this year, new monitoring regulations that physicians, made assessors, and providers have to provide more detailed information than we have for the for all people who are requesting made in Canada, and that does need to extend to our prison population as well. Um, I think also about how um, made where a mental disorder is the sole underlying medical condition, when that becomes legal in March of 2023. Uh, we need to be prepared for people who may be asking for MAID who are also imprisoned, um, who are seeking the, a MAID death in part because of the persistent and treatment-resistant depression that's related to the fact that they are uh, in prison. These are no longer going to be hypothetical situations um, when MAID becomes legal, legal for people where a mental disorder is the sole underlying medical condition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a, a very difficult ethical navigation, uh, teasing out when and how someone is eligible. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, constitutionally, I don't think we can deny made to to people who are in prison, and and that that's probably not the response that's necessary here. But I mean, sh- can or should the criteria be any different? How how do we need to to handle these requests moving forward? Then? 
So I, I'm a firm believer that um, prisoners do deserve the same health care as the rest of Canada. So I would certainly be professionally and personally say that um, I wouldn't want to see access restricted further for people in prison. And if anything, anyone who's putting themselves out there to ask for this um, are really doing a lot of advo- advocacy on their own behalf in order to be assessed and approved for MAID. Uh, I don't believe that any more safeguards need to be implemented, if that's what perhaps you're alluding to, for people who are in prison. Um, but I do think the data needs to be there so that we can fully understand this picture and and uh, track why people are being assessed and, and denied or assessed and found to be eligible. Mm-hmm. In terms of those who, who are maybe feeling as though perhaps in some way they've been pressured to ask for this or, or those who simply uh, don't see any way out and w- would prefer this option as opposed to, to serving a life sentence, that wouldn't fall under the parameters of, of MAID. So do, do those safeguards already exist or how do we address those cases? Yeah, in those cases, um, you're right. That doesn't fall under the parameters of MAID. Someone who's incarcerated still has to be uh, to meet the eligibility criteria that any other Canadian would have to meet. Um, but the fact that they're asking, I think, requires us to call into question the nature of imprisonment, for example. Is it about punishment? Is it about um, restorative justice? Is it about rehabilitation? And if you have someone, uh, and this ties into sort of compassionate release and, and letting people out uh, as in your end of life, if you have someone who's physically incapable of committing a crime, even walking, uh, or who doesn't understand why they are incarcerated, what is the point of keeping them in prison? Um, and I think we need to think about this and, and ask ourselves this. Are there other ways that we can think compassionately about uh, end-of-life care for prisoners? And that might challenge us because yeah. as a whole, um, when we think of prisoners, we think they've done something bad, they deserve to be locked up. And what I'm asking is, can we also see that when we've removed the dignity of so many people and their their rights in many cases to have them incarcerated, can we restore some of that dignity, especially when it comes to end of life? Yeah, big questions, difficult questions for sure. Professor Shaw, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. Uh, That is Jessica Shaw, Associate Professor of Social Work at the University of Calgary. Uh, Done a lot of research in this area, including, as she mentioned, some extensive interviews with inmates about this issue. She filed that access to information request Uh, that helped us learn that indeed nine of these requests have been granted. It's unfortunate that that's what it takes to get what should be readily available information. And uh, given that it's heavily redacted as well, still raises some some big questions around all of this. Uh, Maybe should not come as a, a big surprise that globally freedom of the press is under great pressure, even arguably in some places uh, directly under attack. Now, there's certain situations, I think, that have led to the erosion uh, of world press freedom over the last year, Uh, certainly the situation in Russia related to the war in Ukraine. Uh, But there's also a a trend we're seeing that's not necessarily specific to any country, but what we might refer to as the fake content industry, a combination of, of disinformation, propaganda, and technology, specifically artificial intelligence. And the impact that's having. Reporters Without Borders has released its latest World Press Freedom Index, showing a lot of volatility around the world, uh, showing that the situation for the most part does appear to be eroding globally. Uh, there are some bright spots in this report. Uh, Canada, for its part, has improved slightly up to 15th overall. Norway uh, ranks first for the seventh year running. Uh, more on all of this at rsf.org. But joining us uh, for an overview, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Clayton Wimmers, who is uh, Director of Reporters Without Borders U.S. Bureau, as mentioned, rsf.org. Clayton, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so big picture, globally, as mentioned, uh, press freedom uh, under great strain, I, I think we can say. Uh, so what are we seeing around the world? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair ca- categorization. Uh, we're seeing that the situation in about seven out of ten countries around the world is bad or worse at the moment, uh, which means that we have satisfactory situations in just three out of ten countries. Um, like you said, uh, we're seeing an increase in volatility. Uh, this has been an unprecedented year for rises and falls among countries on the index where they rank uh, among the other countries. 
there's a few things driving that. One is political instability in a lot of different places and the changing political sands uh, and how they impact uh, freedom of the press in their respective countries. Uh, but the other is, as you mentioned, this growing force uh, that we are calling the fake content industry uh, that is leading to all sorts of erosion of trust in the media um, and reliability. Um, we're essentially asking people that uh, to become experts in determining truth from fiction online, especially when we're, they're faced with AI-generated content or manipulated images. Yeah. Well, let's speak to the methodology here. When we're measuring freedom of the press, what what are we measuring here? What's the criteria used for this index? Sure. So we collect data on five different indicators, political, economic, legislative, social, and security. Um, and we crunch that together along with uh, quantitative data that we collect on abuses against journalists um, to come up with a composite score. And that's how we rank every country. Um, to do so, we have a roster of thousands of experts around the world who cover their specific country, who respond uh, to our questionnaire every year. Um, we also have a uh, network of 144 correspondents around the world to help us keep eyes and ears on every country. Uh, as well as 13 offices around the world. So we are all year round uh, monitoring the press freedom situation in every country of the world. So we look at both ends of this. I mean, at the top, as mentioned, Norway uh, ranks first for the seventh year running, followed by Ireland and Denmark. Uh, what, what are these countries doing right? Yeah, there's a few things that the countries at the top of the index all have in common. Uh, I mean, one, a baseline is safety. Journalists have to feel safe to do their jobs, especially when they're out in the field. And so this means you know, they're free to work without threats against their life, the threat of arrest, the threat of retaliation from authorities. Um, we're also seeing so many places where there's a rise in online harassment. And so countries that do uh, a better job of curtailing that um, perform better on the index. But beyond that, the, these countries all have in common two really important factors. One, there is robust funding available for a plurality of media voices. Uh, so that the public can benefit from a very diverse uh, and uh, well-credentialed uh, media. And the other crucial part of that is uh, clear legal separation between state authorities and media decision-making. Uh, because otherwise, when you have a lot of public funding, but the state controls the media, you're just talking about propaganda. Well, and speaking of that, as we look now at, at the bottom of the list, now Russia is not quite at the very bottom, but Russia is a country that, that has uh, declined significantly over the last year, 164th uh, in these rankings. And a lot of that related to, you know, the crackdown on the free press uh, following the invasion of Ukraine. But we want to go down right to the bottom. We've got countries like North Korea, obviously, China, Vietnam, that are really the worst of the worst. So what, what are we seeing in those countries? These are countries where it is effectively impossible to work as a journalist, but it's also impossible to access reliable information. Um, when we talk about press freedom, it's important to remember this isn't just about the rights of journalists to do their jobs. It's also about everyone's right to access reliable information. So it, it's really a two-way street in that sense. Uh, North Korea, of course, is the most closed-off information space in the world. There simply is no independent media. Uh, China does have... Uh, a lot of state-sponsored media, um, but criticizing the government is effectively impossible. The Internet is closed off in many ways, um, and so citizens don't have good access to information. And increasingly, we're seeing foreign correspondents uh, coming under threat in China and being ex expulsed from the country. I also wanted to ask about where we are, and I guess like where we are specifically, where you are specifically, the situation in both Canada and the U.S., uh, North America, not not great, at least in terms of countries that would be in the upper tier and in, in you know the green zone, as it were. But Canada, up slightly at 15th. The U.S. actually down a little bit, um, but uh, down at 45th in the rankings. So, uh, just a, a comment on on Canada and the U.S. here. Sure. Uh, well, here I'm here in Washington D.C., and I think people in America are often very surprised when I tell them where we rank on the on the press freedom scale. Uh, we're we're really a second tier country when it comes to press freedom, uh, which is extremely disappointing for a country that enshrined press freedom into its constitution in the very first amendment, and often sees itself as a global leader in uh, in projecting these values around the world. Um, but 
you know, you dig into the data and you see an increasingly volatile situation here that is leading to a lot of security issues for the media. We had two journalists murdered in the past year, one of whom murdered by a politician. Um, just this week, a local news station in Memphis had its window shot through. Um, so there's a lot of violence and online harassment of journalists as well. Um, we also have a legal framework that could be much improved. Uh, we lack a federal press shield law, for instance. Uh, one narrowly failed to pass the Congress last year. Uh, and what that would do is ensure that journalistic sources are immune from law enforcement, um, that, they, that journalists can't be forced to give up their sources. Um, looking uh, to our friends up north, as uh, to you in Canada, uh, we see a somewhat better picture, um, especially when you talk about that legal and political framework. Um, there's a very strong culture of uh, separate, uh, avoiding political interference in media decision-making. Where Canada could do a little better is in the security score. Um, we did see a, a, a pretty rash increase in uh, harassment and assault against the media, especially when they were covering the Freedom Convoy um, that passed through Ottawa. Um, and so that was a concern. There's also, you know, room for improvement across the board, uh, to be clear. You know, there are individual cases of journalists being impeded from doing their work. Um, I'm thinking in particular of one case where the RCMP detained two journalists who were covering uh, an indigenous protest uh, in British Columbia. Um, and there's ongoing litigation in that that we're following closely. Well, and given some of the overall trends we talked about earlier, um, I mean... Is there any cause for optimism as we look ahead to, you know, the next year? Or is, are we expecting a lot of this to continue to worsen? You know, it, it, it's hard to say what will happen in the year to come. But, you know, I, I remain optimistic. Uh, and, you know, the reason for that is there are negative trends, but there are positive developments across the board. So you mentioned some of the countries that are doing well in the index. Uh, there are a number of countries that shot up in the index this year. Uh, the Netherlands is one that, that shot up hugely into sixth place. Brazil shot up 10 places, uh, largely because of top-down political change. You know, when the president of the country is no longer assailing the media day in, day out, it really makes a difference because uh, so political supporters pick up on those signals. And when you dial down that rhetoric, it can really improve the safety score. Um, we also are seeing progress all the time in individual cases. Uh, two journalists that RSF has advocated for were released from jail in Egypt just this week, one of whom was in jail for four years. Uh, that's a huge victory. Uh, four journalists were just released by the Houthi rebels in Yemen uh, a couple weeks ago. And so we see you know, progress on all sorts of fronts like that. The important thing is the, uh, that sustained advocacy be maintained and that everyday citizens just continue to pay attention, put pressure on your leaders, and, you know, don't let these stories die out because it's really up to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. More is mentioned, rsf.org. Clayton, thanks again for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All the best. That's uh, Clayton Weimer's uh, U.S. Bureau Director with Reporters Without Borders, rsf.org. More on the uh, World Press Freedom Index. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.